is good to be back with you for a, a fourth year, and I've gotten to enjoy not only getting to see Ben each year and his family, but also uh, getting to meet some of you and, and see you and recognize you as I have gotten to come back. Uh, I'm excited about the things that are happening here at Buford. I, I'm just encouraged by the dinner that I had with Ben a few minutes ago and hearing about some of the good things that are happening now and things that are planned to happen in the future. He didn't tell me if it was secret or top secret or top, top secret, so I won't say anything, no. Uh, but there's, there's a lot of good things happening, and I know that, uh, that God is at work here among you, and uh, I appreciate what each of you are doing. Uh, today, I, I also didn't know that I'm the last speaker in the series, by the way, so I'm going to really try to, you know, ratchet up the enthusiasm even more, end on a high note. Uh, today, we're going to be looking at 2 Corinthians chapter 5. You can turn there if you'd like. Really... 2 Corinthians 5 is so connected to 2 Corinthians 4 that we're going to talk about 2 Corinthians 4 and 5 in a way tonight. But before we get started in that, what I'd like to just briefly remind you of is the fact that we as humans and we as people living in the year 2023 in the state of Georgia, we need hope. We need hope. Uh, in a 2022 Gallup poll, you may have seen this make the news a while back, it was estimated, you know, however they did the research, that only about 42% of Americans believe that the next generation is going to have a better life than they had themselves. In the year 2000, 2001, 2002, thereabouts, the percentage was 71% of Americans believed that their children or their children's children, depending on their age, would have a better future than they had. Now, I think it's important, just right off the top, to say we need to be careful how we define better life. Gallup defines better life as a better standard of living, a better career, a better, um, uh, basically, uh, not to make it all materialistic, they say a better education, things like that, but uh, it's very much concerned with success and things like that. So we, let's not make too much of the statistic, but suffice it to say that we don't live in a time there, where there's a sweeping optimism that has taken the hearts of people around us. Uh, on the contrary, people are looking for hope. You may have seen the movie. I don't know if you went to the movies and watched The Sound of Freedom. I have not seen it, so you can tell me all about it if you want afterwards. I've not seen it. Uh, I have an 18-month-old, so going to the movies is low on my priority list right now in terms of my time. But I have heard, and you can read articles, and people have told me that have seen it. They say there's a statistic in that movie where they say that there are more people enslaved today in terms of sheer number than ever before in history. Well, you don't actually have to go to the Sound of Freedom movie to know that. That statistic has been out here for a long time, but we would just kind of prefer not to think about those realities in our world today. We think about all these global challenges and poverty and slavery and um, disease and illness and because of our awareness of what happens not just in our communities and nation but also in the broader world, we have sort of this pressing burden and guilt on us a lot of times in looking at the world and, and this despair can easily set in. We're also aware of 
the growing tension between people in our culture, uh, both in the immediate and also on the national level, um, a lot of that tension is largely due to the fact that there is decreasingly shared common, uh, shared moral ground, moral common ground. Um, the value systems of individuals and of groups is slowly diverging. And so there's less for us to uh, sort of persuade each other about because we're talking about different value systems, right and wrong and good and bad. Those things are, are meaning different things to different groups. Now, as a sidebar, not to be a doomsday person and, and make things even worse than they are, but just remember that human tendency is when there are no shared values or where there are less shared values, because there's less opportunity to persuade and argue and compromise and figure out, okay, negotiate and so forth, what tends to happen is each group tries to acquire power sufficient to sustain their value system and enforce it upon other groups. Now, before you think that that is for those far-out secular liberals, that's what they do, that's what humans do. We gather power and we try to say, you're going to all live like I say. And you remember Jesus in Matthew 20. James, John, their mother comes out to Jesus. Grant that these two sons would sit, one at your left and one at your right, when you come into your kingdom. Jesus somewhat rebukes them, somewhat teaches them, but they go back and the other disciples find out, apostles find out about the conversation and they're all mad at each other. And Jesus says, don't you know it is the, the lords, the rulers, the authorities of the Gentiles, the non-Christian, uh, non not that there's a church at this point, but the, the outsiders, they get authority to lord it over others, but it shall not be so among you the greatest of all will be a servant, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Let us remember, in light of all of the despair that exists in our world, that Jesus is going to call us out of that despair, but not by giving us worldly solutions to our despair, but instead teaching us a new way of living and, of course, a new way of power as well. It just so happens Jesus is the most influential person in history precisely because it was not power uh, that he sought to acquire for himself. Violence, prejudice, slander, animosity, hate, you name the descriptive term, things aren't particularly optimistic in our world today. Then you add on the burden and the weight that individuals feel, that you feel, that I feel on an everyday basis. That's the world's problems. Let's talk about your problems, my problems. We think about our work and career, our finances, maybe our debts, our relationships, our health. We think about our, beyond our physical health, our, our mental health, anxiety, depression, isolation, loneliness. In some ways, we'd like to say, nobody's ever had it better in history than you and me. And yet, if that were true, how come we are 
ending our own life at a faster rate than anybody in history that we know of. Clearly, we have a lot of material blessings, but just like that Gallup poll, perhaps we're defining a good life in the wrong terms. We need hope. Maybe at times we feel like, uh, you might remember the Greek story of Sisyphus who uh, Zeus has banished to the underworld and he has to roll the stone up the hill every day. And just when he gets it to the top, it comes rolling back down the hill and for eternity his punishment is to roll the boulder up the hill and to have it come crashing back down. Maybe that's what you feel like is daily life for you. Every day you get up and you got a boulder to move and you move it to the top of the hill and just when you think you made some progress, there goes the boulder back down again. We need hope. Well, in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, you look at uh, verse 8 and 9 and what you see is the Apostle Paul considering his own experiences and I think it's safe to say that the Apostle Paul faced similar and indeed greater hardships even than we face today. As Paul goes through in 2 Corinthians 10 and other places, even in chapter 6, and, and, and describes the, the brutality of the treatment that he has received in his own personal life, that he's not just faced calamities like shipwreck and famine, things like that, no, He's been beaten with rods, he's been whipped, he's been stoned to death and somehow comes back or survives. He's been through a lot. In 2 Corinthians, one of the things that he's going through is the fact that the church that he's writing to aren't listening to him because other people have come in and said, he's not really somebody you should be trusting. So there's the betrayal as well, that hurt. But Paul says, we are afflicted, we are perplexed, we're persecuted, we're struck down. He, he, he goes, basically, he, he pulls out these terms to describe his experience, and he says, we've been up against so much in our life. Perhaps you might be tonight thinking similarly about your life or about the world around us. Afflicted, perplexed, persecuted, struck down. And yet, in 2 Corinthians 4, Paul 8 and 9, Paul uses two words that begin our sort of entry point into talking about the Christian hope. And those two wonderful words are, but not. He says in this passage, we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. Paul says, in light of all of the chaos in the world around me, as a Jew living in a Roman world, as a Christian living in a Roman and Jewish world, and all the persecutions and the upheaval, and in my own life, my health, and all that he could talk about, he says, all this is going on, but yet I have not lost hope. What we want to look at tonight is, what is the hope that is so significant for Paul that it's able to sustain him in the midst of all of this pain and hurt in the world? And, and basically, we'll see these three things in our study tonight. The first thing is the nature of Christian hope. What, what really is our hope as Christians? 
The second thing we're going to look at is the means of our hope. How, how do we have this hope that Paul is going to describe? And then we'll talk about the mission of that hope. And all of this will come from 2 Corinthians 5 with a little bit of help from 2 Corinthians 4 as well. Let's talk about the nature of Christian hope. Look, if you would, at 2 Corinthians 4, the last couple of verses here, which is B 16 through 18, and specifically, we're going to emphasize verse 17, but we'll read the, these three verses. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day, for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen but to the things that are unseen for the things that are seen are transient but the things that are unseen are eternal now look at verse 17 again for this light momentary affliction how is it that Paul could look at the state of the world? How could Paul stand here today even and say that the affliction that people are enduring is light? How could he say that to you? I'm afraid that sometimes we misunderstand the sense in which Paul is using the, the terminology. I don't know if I, I, I do this, I still do this. I'm not criticizing anybody. Somehow we've gotten convinced in our mind, I've gotten convinced in my mind, that a good attitude to have about hardships is to say, well, it could be worse. Basically what we're saying is, our pain, whatever it is, is light compared to what could be. Now, for some things, that makes a lot of sense. You have an inconvenience. Our air conditioning went out yesterday. And we live in Georgia, you know? I'm from Colorado, that shouldn't, you know, this is not a biblical temperature. But uh, anyway, and as it turned out, it was a very simple fix. Uh, we, I actually was able to fix it, shockingly. So it, maybe it was intervention. But uh, could I have said, and probably did I say, well, it could have been a lot worse. Well, sure, it could have been a lot worse. Could have no air conditioning, et cetera. But you know, if you really take that out to its logical end, you find a very disappointing motto and mantra for your life. Somebody gets diagnosed with cancer. What could be worse? You have stage one, it could be stage four. Could be worse. Well, well, it's not that that's not true. It's just not very encouraging. It doesn't give much hope. Somebody that's lost a loved one, maybe a child. Well, it could be worse. Nobody maybe says it that way, but we teach people all the time. This is a good attitude. We teach our kids. Just remember, it could always be worse. Well, I guess I, I could have lost both my legs and lost a loved one. I mean, it could be worse. Paul is not saying that our suffering is light compared to what we could experience here. Look at the contrast that he makes. He says, our, our suffering, our affliction, is light and momentary, temporary, because of the weight of what is to come. Weight being W-E-I-G-H-T, not W-A-I-T. He says, for this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Don't miss the connection between light and heavy. 
between light and weight, right? He's trying to talk in terms uh, of using the, the metaphor of weight to illustrate something to us, and it's not to take our suffering and say, well, what could be worse than this? I guess it is light. No, no, it's to say, in comparison to the weight of what is coming, the heaviness of what is coming, this is actually light. Now, we're going to need to talk about what we mean when we say heavy and weighty, and we'll illustrate that as we go. It, it, what, what's interesting is that in the Old Testament, one of the Hebrew words for glory actually means weight, means heaviness, most literally. Now, you understand that it, most of the time it's referring to God's um, glory, his character, his nature, but the idea is it's, it's talking about the, the gravity of who God is. That's another way to put it, right? Weight, the gravity of who God is. We use the word weight sometimes in this way. When we talk about an author or a writer, we say they, um, they measure their words. What does that mean? They're weighing them. They're considering which word is going to carry the most significance. Maybe you go and see a movie or you read a book and you say, that was a heavy movie. That was a heavy book that I just read. You don't mean it was a 900-page book and it was hard to carry around. You mean it had substance to it. There was something real there. Compared to other books that you've read, this got closer to reality. It struck closer to your heart. It represented something of substance, like another image of weight, another term that has to do with weight. When Paul says, we have an eternal weight of glory that we're looking forward to. Paul is trying to begin to get us to think about the, the reality of what is to come, the substance of what is to come. Basically, he's saying that we are currently in a state of flimsiness, of frailness in our current bodies and in our current experience. We're temporary, we're weak, and yet we're being prepared to find ourselves in an eternal weight of glory in our resurrected bodies. Look at 2 Corinthians 5 as Paul begins to make this clearer, and then we're really going to start digging into the heart of this weight of glory. In 2 Corinthians 5, verses 1 through 5, Paul discusses the resurrection. He discusses what is to come for God's people. And in particular, Paul, and he makes this clear to the Thessalonians at times and other places, 1 Corinthians as well, Paul is anticipating the return of Jesus Christ. He's living every day like Jesus could return that day. He's ready for the resurrection to take place in his lifetime. And so he's looking at his life and his sufferings, and he says, we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Look at this in verse 2 and 3. He says, For in this tent, this body that we have, we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling, if indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened. But look at this right here. He says, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, 
so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who prepares us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. What's he saying? He's saying, I am looking forward to receiving the body that God has prepared for me in glory. My tent that is withering and frail and temporary and gets sick and gets injured and all of that, I am light compared to the weight of who I will be through what Jesus will do for me. It's very clear in the New Testament that Paul and the rest of the New Testament writers anticipate a resurrection of God's people. That's not controversial, I don't think. That Paul understands that there's coming a day, just like Jesus said there would be a day, when there will be a resurrection of both the godly and the ungodly, the righteous and the unrighteous. And that on that day, Paul is expecting to receive this heavenly dwelling, this heavenly body that has been prepared for him. He's anticipating the resurrection. Now, if you look at verses 6 through 10, Paul also makes it clear that even if that resurrected body that he's going to receive doesn't come before his death, he's okay with that. He says, oh, hey, when my spirit departs from my body, I'm going to be with, at home with the Lord, and that's going to be a wonderful thing, and I'm, I'm looking forward to that. If I die, he says, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain in the book of Philippians chapter 1. So, so he's not distressed about the in-between state of being dead and being raised from the dead. But he has this great hope, and this great expectation that he will be receiving a body that is heavy of substance that lasts. He anticipates in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 14, in fact, this is precisely the conviction that Paul has for his ministry. This is the, the controlling uh, truth that Paul wants to proclaim. Since we have, this is verse 13, chapter 4, since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, I believed, so I spoke. We also believe, and so we also speak. Well, what do you believe, Paul? Verse 14, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. You know, when Paul spoke to the Athenians, and he spoke in Acts chapter 17. He reasoned with the Jews in the synagogue, but when he was in the marketplace talking to, um, talking to the, the Romans, the, the Greeks and the Romans, they actually think that he's proclaiming to them two gods, if you look at what Acts 17 says. Jesus and the resurrection. Because in Greek, you know, um, they're their gods and goddesses and whatnot, they very often represent concepts, so fertility and so forth. So they think, oh, he's got, he's got one God, Jesus, and one God, resurrection. Well, certainly Paul didn't, but how did they get that idea? Because Paul was so obsessed with the resurrection that he couldn't stop talking about it. It's going to happen, he's saying. I believe that I'm coming back to life, coming back to life. Let's talk about this weight of glory that we will experience. I am not here today 
to tell you what it's going to be like, where it's going to be, how it's going to be, if you're going to be out there hitting the links, you know, as some people are fishing or whatever the, the common things are uh, when we lose a loved one. Oh, he's up there fishing, you know, whatever. Maybe so. I don't know. But I want to talk about the weight, the substance of what we have coming. C.S. Lewis actually wrote a little article, uh, essay, speech, whatever it was. It's called The Weight of Glory. You can buy it, but you can buy it in a book that's The Weight of Glory and other writings. It's only like 15 pages, 20 pages. But he takes up this idea from 2 Corinthians chapter 4, this eternal weight of glory that Paul's elaborating on in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and he says, you know what? The word glory in Greek refers basically to uh, recognition, to fame, to popularity, to um, approval, maybe is a good way to put it. And he said, I couldn't quite figure out what Paul's talking about here in 2 Corinthians 4, an eternal weight of glory, of fame. He says, that sounds more like hell than heaven competing with one another to see who's going to be the most recognized and who's going to have the most jewels in their crown and so forth and so on. He said, that just sounds like more of the world than of heaven. Then he said, I started to read and study, and I realized that many Christians long before me realized that it's not about the recognition of others that is this weight of glory. It's about the approval of God. The more you consider that you and I will stand before the judgment seat of Christ, which is what Paul says in verse 10, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. The more you think about the fact that God himself will look at your face, the more you start to think about the weight of what is to come, the gravity, the heaviness of what is to come. By heaviness, I don't mean sorrow. Don't go there yet. The gravity. Here's how Lewis put it. In the end, that face, which is the delight or the terror of the universe, must be turned upon each of us either with one expression or with the other. Can you imagine what it will be like to have God look at your face and to see the look on his face? That's heavy. That's weighty knowing that the look on his face will either, as Lewis says, be the delight of the universe for you or the terror of the universe for you. To have your entire existence, to have your entire life judged in that face. And to know even more how undeserving you are to stand before that face. You think about what John says in 1 John 3, or even what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13. Both of them use this image of 
Um, we don't know what's coming. Paul says we're looking through a mirror dimly. John says, I, I don't know what we're going to be like in the end. But I know that we're going to be like him. Christians, we're going to be like him. Why? First John chapter 3 says, because we will see him as he is. What was it that John saw in that scene in Revelation 4 through 6? What was it that John saw when they couldn't find anybody who was worthy to open the scroll? John started weeping and crying. And they said, wait, wait, the Lion of Judah, the Root of David, he's here in all his power. He's going to open the scroll. And John says, and I got up from my weeping and I looked and I saw a lamb looking as though it had been slain. You know, when Jesus appeared with his resurrected body, uh, and Paul says we're going to be raised like him, it certainly wasn't a body like ours. He could go through locked doors, for crying out loud. But he could also eat with his disciples. And even more than that, Jesus could show his disciples his scars. He could say, touch here, and touch here, and touch here, and believe. To look upon the lion and the lamb, and to stand before him totally exposed, that is a moment of great weight. So weighty is that moment that when that moment happened for Adam, what did he do? He was hiding in the trees, and God said, where are you? And he said, well, I'm over here. He said, why are you hiding? And he said, I was afraid. I was afraid. I was afraid to meet your gaze, to stand before you. So I hid. The great Christian hope is that we will, not a wish, I'm not talking about, oh, I hope it, no, no. The confidence of the church is that we will stand before that face and we will hear the words, well done. That God the Father will actually delight in us. That itself is a kind of weight that helps to begin to make sense of how we can endure the sufferings of this world. It's not because we've done well, mind you, we're going to talk about that in a moment, but to know that God the Father is going to look upon us with a smile and say, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of your master. If it is true that God himself will look upon you and he will say, well done. I just want you to come in. All of a sudden, the afflictions that we face today begin to look lighter and lighter and lighter, not because they are light, but because they are light in comparison to the weight. Not just of glory and all the experiences of heaven and all that. They're light compared just to that moment. And you know now why Paul says, I need a, I need a heavenly body prepared. I, this face can't stand before God, he says. I, I, I'll be consumed. No one can look at God and live. 
says, I need a body of substance compared to the body that I have now. There's a kind of rejoicing, a kind of joy in delight that gets corrupted very quickly in us, isn't there? All over the world, perhaps all over this room, including myself, there is a struggle for approval. You did good. You're better than that person, or you, you did a better job at this you know, part of your work. We're going to give you a promotion, or good job speaking, or good job teaching, or good job you know, uh, making this business proposal, whatever the thing might be. We're constantly looking for approval, and it's really not pure in the, in the real, the purest sense. But I'll tell you, there's a kind of delight in approval that takes you, just gives you a little taste of heaven. And it's the delight that is found in, I said I have an 18-month-old, um, it's the delight that's found in a little toddler who has no conception of competing with other toddlers. They're walking before I am. Who takes a first step and just starts laughing. Why? I'm so proud of how strong I am. No. Because mom and dad are going, yeah, buddy, you did it, you did it. And he doesn't say or she doesn't say to herself or himself, I've got it going on, I'm king of the world, you know, that, maybe that's going to happen, that's going to happen, it happens in each of our life, where we, we begin to say, yeah, I am pretty good, but right there at the beginning, what is done is done purely to rejoice in, for its own sake, to take a step and to, to clap along and say, oh yeah, that was awesome, wasn't it? Our Father delights in us the same way that you delight in your one-year-old, or you did. Same way, perhaps, you delight in them now. But to experience again, we can't even put ourselves back into that position in our life. Even if you currently have a kid that age, you can't do it. We got too much corruption in us from the world to really appreciate how to delight in approval without it being self-centered. But here, God looks upon us and like a father with a toddler, he says, you did it. You did it. And all that's left for us to do is smile and laugh and of course, enter in. Lewis uh, again says, the promise of glory is the promise that we shall actually survive the examination, that we shall find approval, that we shall please God, to be loved by God, not merely pitied, but delighted in. As an artist delights in his work, or a father in a son, it seems impossible, a weight or burden of glory, which our thoughts can hardly sustain, but yet it is so. Now, if it's not heavy, it's because we're not really thinking about how monumentous this is. God, who created the whole universe, and who you and I have wronged at every turn in our life. Well to get ahead of ourselves. 
God who bears the wounds will delight in you. That should drive us to a kind of trembling within us to consider who we really are and yet who God has chosen to treat us as because of Jesus Christ. So what is the nature of Christian hope? It's the weight of glory. The nature of the Christian hope is that we will be with God and that we will have a transformed body, but more than that, that we will find our delight in God's delight over us, that we will have joy before his face. How is it possible? Well, I've just told you, but I'll tell you some more. In 1 Corinthians, it's 7.50? Oh, no. I was hoping it was about 7.30. Sorry about that. Uh, let's go on. First, 2 Corinthians 5. I told Ben, this is way, way too much. Uh, 5.21. For our sake, God made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. There's the gospel for you right there. That's the means of the Christian hope, is what Jesus has done for us. It is not us, not our performance, but because Jesus has made us a new creation. That's what Paul says, 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 17. Without getting lost in the technicalities, I, I really don't know how exactly this works. But I do know that when Jesus went to the cross, he, he became light in order that we might become heavy. I know that when Jesus went to the cross, Paul says God made him who had no sin to be sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. We are going to receive the weight, the honor, the privilege, the delight that was due Jesus because Jesus took the fragile, the temporary, no more than that, he took the guilt and the shame and the reason we were afraid in himself on the cross. Maybe I can put it another way. In some sense, Jesus suffered the I never knew you in order that we might rejoice in the well done. Jesus says, after all, that to stand before the face of God and to not have the righteousness of Christ is to hear Jesus say, depart from me, I never knew you. That would be the opposite of the delight and acceptance and approval. Jesus experienced the I never knew you in order that you might receive the well done. When Jesus is on the cross and calls out to God, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Hebrews 12, 1 and 2 tells us the answer. For the joy set before him, he endured all of that. You, me. And to, to consider the weight, not just of the creator of the universe, but the savior of our souls who suffered in some way. I don't know how it's possible, but he suffered all the punishment that you deserved. To look on his face. What, what would the person that suffered every punishment you deserve, what should they do to you? And yet he says, well done. Enter in to the joy 
of your father, of the master. The mission then of hope, according to Paul, is reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, please be reconciled to God. But really, the the key verse, in a sense, of this whole passage is 2 Corinthians 5, verse 14, where he says, The love of Christ controls us because we have been convinced that this one died for us all. He says, The love of Christ controls our hearts. Um, uh, Another one is, uh, another way of putting it is, The love of Christ has us in its grip compelling our every move. I want to just ask you, are you gripped with the love of Christ? Are you gripped by that love, looking at the weight of divine approval and entrance into eternity with Jesus Christ? My friends, I I, I fear that we can be pretty good at figuring out what is intellectually true and not true. We can be even pretty good sometimes at serving other people. But if we have lost the wonder of what Jesus has done for us in our hearts, then we're we're missing it all. We're missing it all. If we cannot stop and look at this lion and lamb who's standing there looking at us and says, well done, knowing full well what we've done and knowing full well what he's done in order to say that and not wonder in it and exalt in it and say, how can this be? Then really we might be more part of a club than we are people who are deeply touched by what Jesus has done. We might enjoy gathering together and hearing things that we say, well, that's, that's a good way of arguing about that, and that church down the road is wrong after all. But if there's no wonder, in vain do these people honor me with their lips, yet their hearts are far from me. May it not be for, so for us. May we come again and again and again to the scriptures and say, God has us so tightly in his grip because of what he has done for us. Where else could I go, Peter says to Jesus in John 6. You have the words of eternal life. Don't send us away, Moses says. Don't leave us. If, the, if, you, if you leave us, we have no hope. If I can't go with them, I mean, if you won't go with them, I can't go with them. Don't leave your people the presence of God, the presence of Jesus. David says, don't cast me away from your presence. It's not merely getting the right answers to the right questions. It's appreciating, believing, embracing the weight of glory, the gravity, the substance, the joy, the delight of hearing Jesus say, well done, good and faithful servant, because of what he's done for us. Therefore, Paul says, we're ambassadors for Christ. 
How, in Acts 4, they say, how can we stop talking about what he's done? You can tell us not to. You can persecute us. You can beat us. You can lock us up. We can't stop speaking about the things which we've seen or heard. Paul says, and with this I'm done, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, I've already read it, but he, he says, I believe and so I speak. We believe and so we speak, knowing that Jesus raised, was raised from the dead and will be raised also. I believe, so I speak. Do you believe that Jesus rose from the dead? It's not a rhetorical question. Do you believe it? Y'all have voices. Do you believe it? Do you believe that Jesus died for you? Do you believe that because of what Jesus did for you, you can stand before God's presence and hear the words, well done? Do you believe that? May the love of Christ control you and me like the love of Christ controls Paul. And if you're here tonight and you need to embrace that grip in your life, that, that grip of love. You say, I, I want to have that hope. I want to be clothed in Christ, as Paul describes baptism in Colossians. We want to offer you the invitation to be immersed into Christ, to follow him every day, and to say, I am convinced that one died for all, therefore all died, but now one lives, and through him all can live. If that's you, come as we stand and sing.